Philip Pillsbury was a Yale University graduate, an All-American on the water polo team, a tenor in the glee club. He was born into the famous milling family. Philip ended up the chairman of the Pillsbury Food Company. But on the factory floor, no other executive was as respected as Philip Pillsbury. You see, he started out his career as a simple flour miller, a laborer like everyone else in the plant. And his three missing fingertips were proof. You see, every journeyman miller gets his fingertips at times caught in the grinder, and this happened to Philip Pillsbury. This meant that in his years as chairman, whenever an employee shook the boss's hand, the worker noticed those three missing fingertips. That handshake was a reminder that the boss was not above doing the same work as everyone else. It was because Philip Pillsbury understood what it was like to work in the trenches, his employees loved him. Well, in a sense, these last four chapters in 2 Corinthians are a handshake from the Apostle Paul. Paul shows off his missing fingertips, what it had cost him to follow Jesus. The Apostle's call and conduct were legit. The grace of God had changed Paul's life. How dare these charlatans in Corinth belittling God's work? In essence, in chapters 10 through 13, Paul holds up his missing fingertips, his scars, and his sacrifices to prove the genuineness of his ministry and the truthfulness of the gospel he preached. Chapter 11 begins, Oh, that you would bear with me in a little folly, and indeed, you do bear with me. Now realize in chapter 11, Paul is going to use a line of reasoning that ordinarily would be foreign to him. He calls it a little folly and even apologizes for it from the outset. You see, normally Paul didn't talk about Paul. He refused to boast in his own achievements. His ministry was not about himself, but God. The glory belonged to Jesus. But in Corinth, the criticism that Paul encountered had targeted his ministry. The attacks had become personal. Thus, to confront them, he had to talk about his own conduct. The man who despised the spotlight had to turn it on himself. In his mind, it was folly to do so. But on this particular occasion, he knew that a little folly was necessary. Paul fought fire with fire. You know, on the great prairies out in the American West, early settlers faced many, many dangers, but nothing as ominous as the threat of wildfire. A prairie fire could roar over the dry landscape and consume a settlement in an instant. Often to counter these destructive blazes, settlers would do a control burn on their own fields so that when the fire arrived, it had nothing left to fuel it, nothing else to burn, and so it died out. From this practice came the familiar phrase, fighting fire with fire. Today, the expression means to respond to an attack by using a similar method as one's attacker. And this was Paul's method of dealing with these false teachers in Corinth. If Paul's enemies wanted to make him the issue, then he would talk about his ministry and explain his motives. He would fight folly 
with folly. And he begins in verse 2. For I am jealous for you with godly jealousy. Notice Paul wasn't jealous of the Corinthians. He was jealous for Jesus' sake. His Lord deserves a pure and loyal bride. That's why Paul couldn't just stand back and watch this church stray or be deceived or be seduced by false teachers. What if you were the best man at your friend's wedding? And you saw one of the guests flirting with the bride. For your friend's sake, you would be upset. You would be jealous for him. This flirting back and forth would break your heart and his. You'd probably jump in and want to stop it for his sake. This is how Paul felt when a Christian was disloyal to Jesus. When he or she was flirting with the world. Paul continues, For I have betrothed you one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. This morning, I got a few photographs to help explain this concept of godly jealousy. Before long, prom season will be upon us, and every dad with a teenage daughter is well aware of the dangers of prom season. As a matter of fact, whoever invented prom has a few loose screws. Beautiful little girls get all dressed up, real ladylike, for the first time in their lives. Then they go off with a hormonal young man who may or may not be thinking of their best interests, let alone their future husband. I'm not kidding. Prom is a recipe for disaster. That fellow can deceive. He can seduce. He can tempt your little girl. Here are a few photos of godly jealousy in action. You get the, I love the one. Daddy and I are getting ready for my first date. <laughs> Hope you get the, get the idea. And every dad would agree that this kind of jealousy is a good thing. A father needs to be armed with a jealousy and a protectiveness over his daughter's welfare. Well, Paul viewed himself as a protective father. He viewed the Corinthians as his daughter. And it's every dad's obligation to safeguard his daughter's purity until she's presented to her groom on her wedding night. This was how Paul saw his spiritual responsibility. The church is the bride of Christ. Jesus is the bridegroom. At the moment, we are betrothed or engaged to Christ. And Paul's job as the FOB, or the father of the bride, was to help the Corinthians stay pure and dedicated to their groom. For Jesus' sake. Paul couldn't just stand by and watch these Christians get seduced by false teachers or flirt with worldly values. He couldn't watch them get entangled with rival affections. Since Paul loved Jesus and Jesus loved the Corinthians, that meant Paul loved the Corinthians. Paul jealously watched over these believers so he could turn them over to Jesus, pure and undefiled. 
Now, don't misunderstand. This doesn't mean that Paul's care for the Corinthians was some selfish thing. It wasn't some territorial control. It wasn't demanding and manipulating. In fact, he respected the Corinthians' free will. You know, at times, jealousy can forget its boundaries. We've all heard of pastors who lead with a heavy hand. They try to corral their flock and force feed them. This is not the shepherd's job. A good shepherd lets his sheep graze. He leads them to green pastures and steel waters. He doesn't drive them. All Paul wanted was to protect the heart of his Savior by safeguarding the bride for which Jesus died to save. And as your pastor, I want you to know, this is how I view my responsibility. I'm a spiritual dad over a large family, and I care if you stray. You are the bride of Christ. Jesus paid a steep price to redeem you. One day, he's coming back for you. He wants, in fact, he deserves your full allegiance. It breaks his heart and mine. It belittles his sacrifice. If you flirt with sin, or if you rub up against this world in a suggestive way, if you love him, you should reserve your heart for him. Because I'm jealous for Jesus, I can't just watch the world seduce you and lure your heart from your Savior. You see, Corinth of old and our world today are both full of spiritual predators out to rob Jesus and shame his people by stealing away our purity and our loyalty. What good dad sits by while that happens to his daughter? Reminds me of the preschool Christmas play. A little girl, five years old, her name was Claire. She was playing Mary, the mother of Jesus. One of the little boys, he was a sheep. Well, prior to the first rehearsal, this little guy was going around to all the kids saying, I am a sheep, what are you? When he came to Claire, she replied, Mary. Well, the little boy must have realized that he had stumbled across a person with a starring role. He was feeling a little bit second fiddle. So to justify the importance of his part in the play, he said to Claire, he says, you know, it's hard to be a sheep. Little Claire replied, yes, and it's hard to be a virgin. <laughs> hey, you know, I think that most of us would say the same, that it is hard to be a virgin, not just sexually, but spiritually. As Christians, we're called to reserve our deepest longings for Jesus, but that's hard. We get so easily distracted. And Paul was aware of these difficulties. In fact, this is why he writes in verse 3. But I fear, lest somehow, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Paul was right to worry. For Satan is skillful. Ephesians 6 verse 11 warns us of the wiles of the devil. His schemes, his tactics are lethal. Remember, Satan has been at it for a long, long time. People often ask me, can Satan read our minds? Well, the answer to that is no. But here's the deal. He doesn't have to. For he's had plenty of time to study human behavior. The devil knows which buttons to push. Seduction is his business. He's been luring folks into his web for many millennia. And though his temptations remain the same, he, he is refining 
his approach and his methods all the time. Here in verse 3, Paul recalls the serpent's ploy in the Garden of Eden. You know, it's interesting, God's demands have always been simple. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. See, God's simple command is trust and obey. But here's what Satan does. He then comes in and complicates the issue. He uses a series of what-ifs and maybe-nots and second-guesses. This is how he trapped Eve in the Garden of Eden, caused her to eat herself out of house and home. Notice, remember what he did in Genesis chapter 3. First, Satan came doubting God's word. Satan asked Eve, has God indeed said? In other words, did God really mean that? He doubted God's word. Then he denied God's word. He says, you will not surely die. God wouldn't do that to you. He's not cruel. Finally, Satan distorted God's word. He said, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. But you see, the devil painted that as a desirable state and thus robbed all mankind of our innocence. Prior to sin, Eve only knew good. Now, after she bit the apple, she became acquainted with good and evil and became imprisoned in the struggle between the two. Sadly, Satan failed all three temptations. She doubted God's word. She denied God's word. She distorted God's word. She swallowed the lie and bit the fruit, and we've been suffering spiritual heartburn ever since. Paul's concerned this doesn't happen to the Corinthians. Paul sums up what happened to Eve with the phrase, corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. You know, following Jesus is at times hard, but it is always simple. Trust and obey. Believe in his promises. Live life as if his words are true, because they are. Stay focused on the simplicity that is in Christ. In Jesus, you have all you need. He makes you righteous. He fills you with his love. He is your peace and your strength. Apart from Christ, you can do nothing. In Christ, all things are possible. The key to victorious Christian living is to never be lured away from the simplicity that is in Christ, as if you needed something or someone else. Once there was a wise old pastor, he gave some good advice to his apprentice. He told the young man, he said, preach a full gospel, Christ and nothing less. Preach a plain gospel, Christ and nothing more. Preach a pure gospel, Christ and nothing else. Christ is all we need. It's the KISS principle. Keep it simple, saint. Friend, make Jesus your all in all, and you'll never go wrong. Fred Rogers of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, the kids' show, he knew a little bit about the faith of a child. Mr. Rogers once said, Life is deep and simple, and what our society gives us is shallow and complicated. Would you agree? We could maybe say it this way. God gives us the deep and simple. But Satan tempts us with the shallow and the complicated. Never allow yourself to be pulled away from the simplicity that is in Christ. For verse 4 tells us, For if he who comes preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit 
from which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you may well put up with it. I mean, Paul was worried about these Corinthians, their spiritual discernment, or lack thereof. The believers in Corinth had already revealed how gullible they were by putting up with the false teachers who had lied about him. The Corinthians failed to realize that not everybody who talks the talk walks the walk. I hope you know this. You know, you can speak for God. You can even claim to be God's spokesman, but that doesn't mean you really know God. There are phonies on the circuit. When a grandma enters our church with big eyes and a great big nose and furry whiskers and a huge fang-like teeth, even though she refers to herself as grandma, somebody among us needs to be thinking wolf. And Paul says this is the father's job. The pastor, the elders of the church, the fathers of the bride are supposed to be protecting the daughter. This was Paul's role in the Corinthian church. He warns them of false teachers. And notice what Paul says about them. They come preaching another Jesus, a different spirit, and a different gospel. You need to know that the Jesus some people speak of is not the true Jesus. He is an imposter. When Mormons talk of Jesus, they don't have in mind the eternal Son of God, but a former human, a spirit child who worked his way up the ladder to Godhood. When Jehovah's Witnesses speak of Jesus, they're not referring to God incarnate, but to some created being, an archangel, the brother of Lucifer no less. There is a liberal Jesus, a good teacher, but there's nothing divine about him, no virgin birth, no walking on water, not even a resurrection's on his resume. There's a prosperity Jesus, who rather than lay aside this world's wealth and come as a servant and live for heaven, he was worldly rich. He lived his best life now. There's also a therapeutic Jesus who massages your guilt and props up your self-esteem. He's the feel-good guru who never speaks of sin or hell or judgment. You know, the Muslims have a Jesus, the prophet of Allah. There's the Jesus of the Da Vinci Code who was married to a woman. In contrast, some homosexuals promote a gay Jesus. In America, you can even have a political Jesus of Democrat or Republican variety. Yet there is only one true Jesus. The Jesus of history whose story is accurately conveyed in the pages of the New Testament. This same Jesus Paul met on the road to Damascus and spent the rest of his life preaching. Make sure you're following the right Jesus. There's also a different spirit. In a different gospel. Once a fellow stood up at the end of our Sunday morning service and he announced that he had a word for the church. Well, I'm a polite guy. And so I said that he could come up and he could tell me what that word might be. And if I thought it was appropriate, then he could share it with anyone who wanted to hang around and listen to him. Well, his rant was some blistering judgment that was definitely not for the believers at Calvary Chapel. In fact, I told him if he had any guts, he'd be out on the street preaching that message somewhere. I wouldn't let him dump it on our church. Of course, 
he accused me of quenching the spirit. And I remember telling him, I'm quenching a spirit all right, but he's not the Holy Spirit. <laughs> not every spiritual influence is of God. There are different spirits in this world, but only one Holy Spirit. And you know the Holy Spirit by what he promotes. He wants to make us holy, and he wants to point us to Jesus. Jesus spoke of the Holy Spirit in John 15. When the Helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of truth. This is his hallmark. The Spirit always harmonizes with the Scripture, and he testifies of Jesus. If a spirit contradicts what's written in your Bible or downplays the truth about Jesus, rest assured, he's not the Holy Spirit. And there is also only one true gospel. Jesus died and rose and lives today, and in doing so, he did all that needed to be done for us to be saved. So if anyone calls on the name of Jesus, God will forgive their sin for all eternity. That, my friends, is the gospel. As Paul says, there are different gospels, but they're all inferior, for they all try to add to the finished work of Jesus. They require you to keep a set of commandments, or observe a ritual, or believe some ancillary doctrine that doesn't promote Christ. Any gospel that requires more than faith and faith alone in Christ is a different gospel. It is a corruption of the simplicity that is in Christ. You know, today we're all aware of the social media phenomena called fake news. It's the new censorship. You silence what's true by inserting a story that's fake, that's so sensational, the number of hits it gets pushes down the true story in the news feed. Thus, fake news crowds out the truth. And this has been Satan's strategy for years. Fake good news. All these different gospels make it harder for folks to get to the true gospel. This kind of fake news can be fatal. Thus, we need to beware of anyone who comes preaching another Jesus or a different spirit or a different gospel. And these preachers were in Corinth. Verse 5. For I consider that I am not at all inferior to the most eminent apostles. The false apostles who had set up shop in Corinth, they went by the title most eminent apostle, or literally hyper apostle, or super apostles. Reminds me of what pastors do today. To impress their flock, they think they need a title with some clout. I mean, Sandy's not really, not enough. Pastor Sandy doesn't really work either. So they call themselves Bishop. Bishop, man. I'm a bishop. And when bishop starts to fade, then they become an archbishop. And when that starts to fade, the next step is apostle. Well, in Paul's day, there were even super apostles. Yet Paul laughs at this notion of an imminent apostle. These so-called super apostles, they had nothing on him. Despite their title, Paul had more apostolic chops than they did. He says this, even though I am untrained in speech, 
yet I am not in knowledge. Now, don't misunderstand. This doesn't mean that Paul was a boring speaker, that he was untrained in speech. To the contrary, I'm sure that when Paul spoke, it cut straight to people's hearts. He just didn't speak in the oratorical style of the Greek philosophers. A good example of this occurred Friday with our new president's inaugural address. Most of the pundits expected Trump to suddenly sound like a politician just because he was in Washington, D.C. Instead, he communicated in the same raw speaking style that resonated with the people who voted for him. Like him or not, he broke with conventional wisdom. And in a similar manner, Paul defied the lofty speech of the Greek philosophers. He spoke to people's hearts. He targeted them where they lived. His sermons were more about substance than style. And this is how I hope you evaluate a pastor. What he says should be more important than how he says it. We've all heard pastors who are great speakers. Wow, they're funny, they're folksy, they're dramatic. And when you hear them, you leave thoroughly entertained. You're just not quite sure what the guy had to say. So what if it sounds good if it doesn't do any good? Always remember the proof of a good preacher is not that his congregation walks away saying, wow, what a wonderful sermon, but I'm going to follow Jesus. Paul continues in verse 6. But we have been thoroughly manifested among you in all things. In essence, Paul had been an open book before these Corinthians. They should have been ashamed for doubting him and his motives. Paul had lived among them for 18 months. He had proven his sincerity up close and personal. He asked in verse 7, Did I commit sin in humbling myself that you might be exalted because I preached the gospel of God to you free of charge? Remember, while in Corinth, Paul had worked to support himself. He partnered with Aquila and Priscilla in their tent-making business. Paul had been a bivocational pastor in Corinth. He could have drawn a salary. He was entitled to one, but he refused. He didn't want to give anybody any reason to say that he was only in it for the money. Yet here's the twisted logic of the false teachers. Instead of recognizing the integrity in Paul's approach, they said the real reason he didn't draw a salary is that his ministry didn't merit one. He wasn't a true apostle. Paul was getting what Paul was worth. Nothing. These guys had it all backwards. They should have been rewarding Paul for his faithfulness. Instead, they were penalizing him. The truth was, even these rich Corinthians couldn't pay Paul what he was truly worth. And then he explains in verse 8 how he had survived while in Corinth. He says, I robbed other churches, taking wages from them to minister to you. In other words, he had taken offerings from other churches in northern Greece, from Philippi and Berea and Thessaloniki. These were poorer churches than Corinth, but he had looked to them to support his ministry. It's interesting, the Greek word translated robbed here is a colorful term. It was used for stripping armor off a dead soldier. Paul literally took the clothes off the backs of these northern Greeks to support his time in Corinth. And it wasn't just that the Corinthians lacked appreciation of his efforts. What's worse is they twisted the meaning of his actions And used them against him. Verse 9 he says, And when I was present with you and in need, I was a burden to no one. 
For what I lacked, the brethren who came from Macedonia, Thessaloniki, and Philippi, they supplied it. And in everything, I kept myself from being burdensome to you, and so I will keep myself. Paul had been so noble in his approach. He wasn't burdensome to the Corinthians in any way. How could they have turned on him? How could they have doubted his intentions? Paul had been a faithful shepherd, yet these dumb sheep in Corinth chose to follow wolves in sheep's clothing. You know, we marvel at their stupidity, yet I'm afraid this same mistake gets repeated every week in American churches. I know pastors who love the Lord. They love their people. They have made sacrifices to serve their church, yet they get mistreated by the very people that they sought to serve. Whereas I know other pastors who dominate and manipulate folks, who use their position for their own ends, their selfish ends. They live like a king. The church treats them like royalty. It's amazing. The prideful pastor is loved while the man of God gets neglected. To me, this is one of the things I go to bed at night just scratching my head. It's a great irony. But this was also the situation in Jeremiah's day. In Jeremiah 5, verse 31, we're told this, The prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests rule by their own power. But notice this, And my people love to have it so. My people love to have it so. The crooked preacher who scams for money, the pastor who rules his church with an iron fist, they both have an accomplice, an enabler, It's the self-centered congregation who sits under their leadership and blindly supports their antics. You see, they make a trade-off. He tickles our ears. We share in his celebrity while we then turn a blind eye to his corruption. That's the deal that's been struck. I've heard church members say, well, there may be some problems there, but this ministry makes me feel so good as if it's about you feeling good rather than us doing right. Over the years, I've watched sincere, legitimate, simple men of God who were careful not to ask for a dime go without, while churchgoers fill up the coffers of slick preachers who pride themselves on being able to work a crowd. There's an old saying, I'm sure you've heard it, people get the leaders they deserve. And it's true in the church. Manipulative and money-hungry pastors are only part of the problem. Sadly, there are people in the church who like the circus. They love the elephant so much so, they'll tolerate the poop that comes with them. Verse 10. As the truth of Christ is in me, no one shall stop me from this boasting In the regions of Achaia. Why? Because I do not love you? God knows. All these efforts to prove himself had nothing to do with Paul. The reason that he was indulging in a little folly and turning the spotlight on himself is because he loved these Corinthians and he cared for their spiritual welfare. And he wanted them to know who their pastor truly was. He says, but what I do, I will also continue to do that I may cut off the opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the things of which they boast. 
In other words, Paul boasts and defends himself to shut up the false teachers who boast when they have no reason to do so. Their boasts are empty. Paul says in verse 13, For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. Here Paul comes right out and he labels his enemies in Corinth. False apostles, deceitful workers. They were phony and their preaching was baloney. They called themselves super apostles. In reality, they were pseudo apostles. They were bogus. And Paul says it shouldn't surprise us when we see Christianity feigned. Christianity faked. That shouldn't surprise us, for he explains. And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Jesus referred to Satan as a wolf in sheep's clothing. Here Paul calls the devil an angel of light. It was Shakespeare who said, The devil hath power to assume a pleasing shape. Understand, Satan is the master of disguise. He goes by a million aliases. He has a zillion fake IDs and phony passports. He loves to skirt detection. The devil was once an angel. Ezekiel 28 refers to him as the anointed cherub. It says he was full of wisdom and perfect in beauty until iniquity was found in him. Hey, don't expect Satan to appear in red leotards and horns and a pointed tail with a little pitchfork in his hand. He's too sophisticated to confirm those kinds of caricatures. No, the element of surprise is Satan's most effective weapon. He comes in ways where you might not recognize him. I would imagine some of you are fans of the Twilight Zone. Anybody? The Twilight Zone was a sci-fi series from the 1960s. In the second season, there was an episode known as The Howling Man. An American traveler was walking through Europe. When he got caught in a rainstorm, he seeks refuge in a monastery. There he hears the howls of a man who's locked up in a dungeon. This man pleads for him to remove the staff that bars his door and to set him free. The head monk, Brother Jerome, he tells the American that the man in the dungeon is the devil and that he is kept there in the cell by the staff of truth. But the traveler doesn't believe him. The howling man talks him into setting him free. (laughs) In fact, the traveler, he gives in to the howling man's pleas. And as this man walks away, his identity finally gets revealed. Would you like to see the clip? Here we go. You're going to love this acting.
the twilight zone. Now, at the end of the episode, this American traveler, he confesses to the old monk, he says, I saw him, and I didn't recognize him. And that's when Brother Jerome makes a statement. It's worth remembering. He says this, that is man's weakness and Satan's strength. That is man's weakness and Satan's strength. That often we don't recognize him at first glance. This is why Satan and his agents almost always appear in something pleasing. Seldom do they come in sinister-looking garb. Rather, they come in appealing packages. Satan comes to you as the beautiful blonde in a string bikini or the clean-cut Mormon missionary talking about family values or the father figure you think you can trust or the polished preacher in a three-piece suit or the buddy who offers you pills to cure your eels. Don't believe it. Satan and his operatives are slick and sophisticated. They're polished and pleasing to the eye, but they are hell-bent on your destruction. Beware. Expect Satan to offer you a deal so sweet, you almost miss the fine print. You almost overlook the one catch. Is it any wonder, knowing Satan's deceptiveness, is it any wonder that the best ads are always the beer commercials? Have you noticed this? I mean, the best commercials are the beer commercials. You know, I wish just one. It's always a party. They're always having fun. They're all having a great... I wish just once there was a commercial that told you the truth. Well, I got one. You want to see it? Mark's signature songwriting. <laughs> it's about time somebody showed you the other side of the story, don't you think? Now, I'm not saying it's a sin to drink a beer on occasion. The Bible doesn't say that. But like everything else that this world offers, it's never what it's cracked up to be. Do you get it? The devil specializes in false advertising. 
He always wraps temptation in pretty wrapping paper, not in a trash bag. In verse 15, Paul concludes his caution on deceiving appearances. He says, therefore, it is no great thing if his, that is Satan's ministers, also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their works. If Satan can appear as an angel of light, obviously his demons, his false prophets, can also come disguised in a cloak of respectability. Hey, a big Bible under his arm, name tag it says reverend, still doesn't mean that pastor is the real deal. Beware. I read where there was a little girl who was given a soft, cuddly teddy bear as a gift from her friend. But when she tried to take the stuffed animal on the airplane, the TSA screening found a 22 caliber loaded pistol sewed into its lining. Someone had hit it there years earlier. That's why everything that goes on an airplane needs to be screened. And everything that goes on in the church also needs to be screened. We need to make sure that it's not another Jesus. It's not a different spirit. It's not a different gospel. For Paul to turn the spotlight on himself was a bit foolish, a little folly, he called it. After all that Jesus has done for us, it is a bit silly to boast about anything we might do. But Paul did what was necessary to respond to the critics in Corinth. He feared for the Corinthians. They lacked spiritual discernment. 2 Corinthians 11 begins with Paul's folly and fear, but his boasting here is just beginning. In the next few verses, Paul is going to show off some scars, and he's going to talk about some of his deepest personal experiences. Stay tuned. Same bat station, same bat channel.